Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up. I'm quite pleased that if precautions are made or taken, uh, that we can get through this and celebrate sport. I'm, I'd far rather talk about the concept of unfair advantage in transgender athletes than one person. Overall, it's an easy effort, but it's interspersed with like unbelievable efforts, especially in the mountains. Well, the Olympic Games is uh, just on a month away and the Tour de France just a few days away. So there is a lot happening in the world of sport uh, as we do our podcast today. And as uh, Professor Ross Tucker and I sit in our studio here in Cape Town, it is raining. It's quite wintry outside, but for all of you you that live in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, winter has uh, disappeared. And uh, even in England, they're experiencing some uh, summer conditions, which is uh, Quite rare, quite rare for them in, in England. So uh, lots to be talking about in this edition. I mean, we could probably do about three hours of podcasting today if we were going to talk about all the different aspects of what we can look forward to in the next couple of months. Um, and then, of course, includes Olympic Games. So we're going to start off by talking very briefly about Olympic Games and then get on to the subject uh, that is very close to both myself and Ross's heart, and that is the Tour de France. And uh, we always get very excited about the Tour de France and wonder how we're going to get any work done in the afternoons for 21 days over July, <laughs> which is normally the biggest uh, challenge for us. So let's start off with the Olympics and lots of news around the Olympics, the big news. And I guess uh, there's a couple of big stories hitting the headlines. But uh, let's start off with the, the happy one, the good one. And that is the fact that uh, 10,000 spectators are going to be allowed to be in the stadiums during the Olympic Games per day. Um, but no cheering or... <laughs> Screaming. Let's hope That's it's it. let's hope it's good news. I mean, it could be important yeah. for disaster. If you listen to some <laughs> people talking about how having fans is going to trigger the fourth wave or fifth wave or sixth wave, whatever you pick. Um, yeah, but I was pleased that they announced that because I think mm. a, an Olympic Games in an empty stadium is hollow. Yeah. Even though we've become accustomed to it, I think it still adds a little bit to a special event that you can have some fans. And so they've said ten thousand domestic fans. Yep. Or 50%, whichever comes first. Mm. And that excludes, I was listening last night. Is that was, across all the different state year? Yeah, so I would imagine, for instance, boxing is not 10,000. The no. capacity will be 2,000, so they'll let 1,000 in. Yeah, right. Whereas the football, potentially, I don't know how big their swimming venue is. Yeah. But certainly the track and field will have 10,000 local fans. But then I, I was listening last night. There was talk that that excludes the VIPs and the sponsors, as as one does. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll be, you can imagine, the Olympics runs on money. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there are a lot of sponsors who have paid their millions in order for the right to watch the 100-meter final. So they'll be in the stadium in addition okay. to the 10,000. Plus, I think Japan's got a schools program that's going to put kids in there as well. So mm. I'm hopeful that we'll get... 20,000 and enough to have an atmosphere 
Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful it doesn't kick not, off. Not an atmosphere that you find on the moon, though. <laughs> no, and but and then as you say, they've said they're going to be quite strict about no cheering and screaming. Yeah, so let's just cl- so, clarify why that is. I mean, and I if anyone will pull that off, it's them, right? Like, I yes. mean, it wouldn't work here. Yes, no chance. The Chinese are very observant but of the law. Even the Japanese. Even the Japanese. Even them. <laughs> <laughs> Get um, my country's right. But let, let's, let's just so, clarify why that is. Why, why, why are they not allowing cheering and shouting? Well, they're taking as many precautions as they can. So the, the, the density issue, the 50% and the 10,000, is to allow for spacing. Mm. You don't want too many people in a 100-square-meter space. Mm. And then because it's now known pretty much unequivocally that COVID is spread through droplets in the air, aerosol spread, they want to minimize the chances of that. I remember last year, back in March, the first reports came out of a choir practice in Washington causing yeah. 80% of the people there to get infected in that first wave. This was when we were all still figuring this thing out. So I think the logic is, the rationale is don't let people shout, don't let them scream, because that's going to literally, at the risk of being crude, put spittle into the air, mm. and that's what's going to cause infections. I'm, I'm not convinced that in an outdoor environment like in the Olympic Stadium, that's going to be a major thing. We've seen now, um, even watching the Euros at the moment, the football, rugby's got spectators. They had thousands of people in the US at the recent Indianapolis 500. And I don't know that anyone's linked sports spectating to mm. um, outbreaks. And quite a lot of spectators so, at the French Open as well. A couple that, of weeks ago. Yeah, well, by the time we got to the final week yeah. um, onwards, it was, it, was, it was great to see. Yeah, it was. And I... You know, it's, if, again, going back, there was a there was a Champions League quarterfinal or maybe around a 16 tie between, I could be getting this wrong and I apologize, I think it was Atalanta and Valencia. And in hindsight, they reckon that was probably the super spreader that kicked this thing off in Italy. Yeah. Um, I would imagine by now, if, if sports events were doing the same, someone would have documented it. The thing about this Japan announcement is that the medical community in Japan was saying that they don't think that there should be spectators. Yeah. So the IOC have acted, and not the IOC only, but the, the IOC combined with the Japanese organizing committee have acted despite the medical warnings. But I think there's enough from around the world to say that if you are sensible, you can actually all but eliminate the risk in these public places. There's, there's far higher risk, I reckon, of the trains that carry the spectators being the location of a spreading event than the actual stadium itself. So if you want to invest your time and energy, you want to manage the transport to and from the event, not the time at the event. But anyway, so we'll hear a lot of applause. Um, Yeah, polite applause. Golf clapping. Golf clapping. (laughs) And maybe someone will invent or come up with a new way um, of giving the crowd a voice without a voice. I wonder if a Vuvuzela would be safe. I would imagine would it, that they collect the spittle. <laughs> Vuvuzela seems to me to be the perfect instrument to actually project your spittle into a narrow is. location. So I don't. If you don't know what a Vuvuzela is, just yes. look it up and look up twenty ten World Cup 20, soccer South Africa, and then pray that they don't have Vuvuzelas <laughs> in Japan. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for it. I think yeah. I think the Olympics. There's so much negativity around it um but you know what i realized is that there always is remember in rio it was zika Mm, virus zika yeah and everyone was saying don't have the olympics because of zika there was not a single publicized case as a consequence of those olympics now i don't think that's going to happen here i mean there will be covid cases it's you're in a pandemic you can't avoid it but i'm
I'm quite pleased that if precautions are made or taken, uh, that we can get through this and celebrate sport. I'm really excited that we can start for the first time talking about athletes and performances and not mm. COVID catastrophes. And interesting that uh, you were telling me just before we, did, we went on air that uh, they're testing athletes uh, once a day. Yeah, yeah, that's happening. That's, so a, lot a, of, that's a lot of uh, swabs up your nose. So there's been, yeah. as with everything, there's been a controversy around that because a, a couple of weeks ago, a very famous scientific journal, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine, published an opinion piece by a group of public health experts that criticized the IOC's readiness for COVID. Mm. Because the IOC's got this policy document which basically says what it will do about COVID and which tests will it use, when will athletes be tested, what happens if the athlete is positive. And one of the things that they came into <laughs> criticism for, understandably when you hear it, is they wanted, and I think they still do, they want the athletes to sign a waiver that says that if they get COVID, the IOC is not responsible. So they're basically trying to sidestep any legal um, fallout sure. for putting the athletes in, in this risky situation. And of course, legal people are going, this is preposterous. You can't, yeah. you can't put the athletes in a village and then not, not take on some responsibility mm. for, for potentially when they get COVID. But anyway, among, among the things they are doing is daily testing. When there is a positive the athlete isolates, quarantine for two weeks or 10 days. I'm not sure what that is. I'll stand corrected on that. And then they, they've got contact tracing, which has been criticized, but they're going to use local tracking devices, you know, like Bluetooth and GPS type devices. And I don't know, the degree to which it's disrupted will be interesting. Yeah. The, the worst case scenario is, is a Dutch hockey player comes down with COVID, they trace them and it turns out they've been mingling with the Swedish volleyball team, which has been hanging out with the Jamaican track team, which has been interacting with the US <laughs> track and field team. And now all of a sudden, half the Olympic athletes are yeah. in So yeah. that's... It's a possibility, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it is, it's it's a, probably an outside possibility, but it's... It is, but, but again, like secondary infection and then tertiary infection, you know, mm. as you pass the the COVID baton from one to the next, it, mm. it drops off pretty quickly. So I hope they don't overreact. Mm. I know, for instance, they're testing, if you fail that test, if you, in other words, if your test is positive, they'll double, they'll duplicate it because mm. we've seen some false positives yeah. before. So I think they're taking precautions that, look, to me, they sound sensible. Um, Japan now is on 350 cases a day, which in a country that size is low. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to jinx it, and I certainly don't want to belittle what they're dealing with, but this feels eminently doable to me as long as everyone is sensible and yeah. keeps their mouths shut yeah. at the stadiums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm excited. I'm, I'm Now I'm finally, you know, a month to go. It's real. It's going to yeah. happen, and now we can enjoy it, I hope, yeah. without a COVID And as far disaster. as I know, I haven't seen any athletes that have not decided not to go because they're concerned about safety. Uh, uh, I, have you seen anything? I, I haven't. There, Having read up a lot about the Olympics and lots of news, look, the, nobody's decided not to go for safety purposes. The vaccine has arguably saved the day. Yes, there. well, most of the athletes have been vaccinated. Right. So, not all of them, though. Yeah, so for instance, I was reading the IOC's bought thousands of vaccine doses separate from the world's allocation because yeah. that was a big thing. Like, you know, you, even here in South Africa, what are we on, like 5%? Yeah, something like it's that. It's dreadful. 5% of the only over 60s. <laughs> yeah, something crazy like that. I mean, it'll be it'll be Paris by the yeah, time. Yeah, but we, all our, our South African athletes are getting vaccinated. Right, and yeah. so that's because the ISC has gone 
in, in parallel with with um, governments and their normal responses, they've added mm. to the vaccine pool so that it's not taking away, which I think was important. I, I know Canada got Pfizer and so on. So that's arguably saved that. Mm. Um, yesterday the, or over the weekend, the Ugandan team arrived in Tokyo. They'd all been tested when they left and apparently all vaccinated before they left and one of them failed the test on landing. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so whether that's a false positive on the Tokyo side or whether that's a false negative on the Uganda side, mm. I don't know. But that was the news thing. Oh, a crisis. Mm. My assessment of it is, oh, good, the system seems to be working. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I just, I get that it's just sport, but it's also not just sport. No, for sure. And I'm, I'm pleased that they're going to get I hope they pull it off. It's, it's quite a sell, you know, run, run a good time, qualify for the Olympics, you get a free trip to Tokyo <laughs> and, a, and a vaccine in the process. And a vaccine. Yeah, yeah and I, I just, yeah, I don't know. If, if you're listening to this, you're likely to agree, but I think the world needs a good Olympic Games. Yeah. I mean, we're biased. And yes, it's a massive commercial entity and it's corrupt and whatever else, but come the 23rd mm. of July, it's, good to watch. it's going to be great. Yeah, exactly. So talking about the Olympics, uh, one of the other big stories that's been uh, doing the rounds over the last couple of days was the uh, announcement that Laurel Hobbard, who was a transgender athlete, had been chosen for the New Zealand weightlifting team. And mm. uh, when we spoke about this in a podcast a couple of um, just on a month ago, yeah. um, I, I was I, I knew that she was there was a good chance she was being chosen, but you were saying that it was it was almost a, a fait accompli that she was going to be chosen for that team. Yeah, she, and of course, the controversy around that now has exploded, and we've seen a huge amount of people listening to our podcast we did on that a couple of months ago, and and people are really taking a lot of interest into why this is such a big story, and it is massive. Mm, I've done a couple of interviews in the last day with BBC, Sky, a couple of local stations here in South Africa, and a TV station, because it's now... You see, and, and, and I'm, I'm almost conflicted a little bit because I don't like the fact that now we talk about it with reference to a specific person because that's quite unfair. I mean, even, even on the Sky News interview, they said, does Laurel Hubbard have an advantage? And I, I'd far rather talk about the concept of unfair advantage in transgender athletes yeah. than one person. Yeah. But at the same time, we've all seen over the last few years, people don't really understand the reality of an issue until it's a real issue. So in that regard, Hubbard's selection and presence in Tokyo almost as the, the literal personification of the controversy will help the conversation. So it has been a massive story. And um, it wasn't, you see, once she'd qualified by virtue of meeting the international weightlifting requirements to be selected, New Zealand was never going to omit her. I mean, on what basis would they leave her out? So that yeah. was fully expected. But yeah, once once it happened, now it becomes a tangible thing instead of a conceptual thing. And that might help. It's going to be unpleasant already now, yeah. the last day or so, it's really kicked off. And yeah. if she if she wins a medal, I mean, and that's an outside chance because of the way the selection works. She might only be the well, ninth. she's been shunned by her, her fellow athletes, hasn't she? Some of them have yeah. spoken out. And, and yeah. if there's one thing I've learned in the last couple of years is, if a few athletes are speaking out, then many, many don't agree. Yeah. Because the athletes are really scared to speak up because there is so much social pressure and um, potential hostility, loss of sponsorships, accusations that will come your way for speaking against almost the social wind direction. Yeah. Uh, even if you're correct in the context of sport, and I, I believe they are. So the fact that a few have spoken suggests to me that there's pretty widespread um, opposition. 
Yeah. And you know, like, so, so it, it's a, it's a obscure trivia question, but the, the way the qualification works is you qualify through regions. And so the person who is displaced is another Pacific Island lifter. And apparently it's a Tongan lifter, 21 year old called Kuanini Manumua, who would otherwise have been selected for the Olympic games. So anyway, how, how about, how about might only be the ninth or 10th best lifter in the world, but because of this qualification, she might be the fourth or fifth best lifter in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. Because some countries can't select their second and third best lifters. Yeah. Which means she could win a medal. Yeah. Then it'll be even easier to say she's displaced a medalist. Yeah. But right now she's displaced another lifter. Yeah. And that's the issue. That's the inclusion-exclusion dilemma yeah. that we covered in that podcast. Well, if you want to have a look at that podcast, that was uh, sent out on the 20th of May, so just on a, a month ago, and uh, you can have a look at that. It was entitled, Why Transgender Athletes Threaten Fairness in Women's Sport, and you mm. can get some real detail as to what we've been talking about, and particularly the case around Lauren, Lauren, Laurel Hobbard, uh, because yeah. she was one of the people that we talked about um, around this whole concept. So, yeah. So if you're listening to this without context, go back yeah. and have a listen. I don't, I don't want to go through everything no, again about male-female difference, biological advantage, why it exists, how it's not removed. It's all in that podcast. But suffice to say that fairness is going to be the big story. I mean, barring a doping, a massive doping controversy or a COVID catastrophe, this will be the biggest controversy of Tokyo. Yeah. So arguably we'll speak about we'll it probably see too. more spectators and TV watchers watching the weightlifting channel when this is on purely because it's going to be a story of interest, isn't it? I mean, as much as these things are controversial and there's a huge amount of debate around them, they do create a lot of interest in the sport as a result of this. Mm, the actions you know? of her competitors will be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a few people have said on social media that they should all refuse to compete. I mean, that's not going to yeah. happen. Like athletes, yeah. athletes aren't wired that way, no matter what they think. Mm. So yeah. in addition to the social issues. And I, yeah. I'd hope people will be decent enough to be civil. Yeah. But wow, based on <laughs> what I've seen in the last few days, we know about like, Castor Semenya. <laughs> uh, it's going to be, it's going mean, to be ugly. There's a couple of other stories. I mean, yeah. in, in purely in the South African context, obviously Castor Semenya is a big story here in South Africa, and she's battling to qualify for the Five Thousand, which is the only event that she can actually compete in after mm. not being able to compete in the Eight Hundred. Yeah. And then, of course, Wade Van Eekirk, who in 2017 did a very serious uh, job on his knee playing a, a celebrity rugby match. And yep. um, I think he, he broke his ACL joint. He and also tore the ACL, yeah. yeah. Pretty serious. Yeah. He, he seems to be back in, in reasonably good condition and could be a medalist. Yeah, he ran a race the other day in Europe and he finished second behind a guy called Anthony Zambrano, who's mm. a Colombian who was second in the 400 at the World Champs. He beat him by... A hundredth of a second, I think Finnecke ran 44.56, which is decent. Yeah. He needs to find probably a second. It's hard to see that Olympic final being won in a time slower than 43 and a half. Last, the last World Champs was won by Stephen Gardner in 43.48, if memory serves me. Yeah. Um, you can all write in and tell me I'm wrong, but... Uh, he won it by a lot. The, the, the guy Zambrano ran 44.1 something. So... Historically, like a mid-43 wins the Olympics. I mean, obviously, <laughs> 2016 yeah. was a 43-0-3, but that was mm. exceptional. So if he can find another second, then for sure. But can he? I, I, that seems a lot to me. But a medal is certainly there. No one knows what Stephen Gardner's condition is. He, he, he pulled up injured in a race a month or so ago. Michael Norman, who was last year's fastest man and messed his 
taper up. Sorry, in 2019, really messed his taper up. He ran, he won the US trials at the weekend in 44.04, and his trajectory looks good. So he's probably the guy to beat. Mm. But that'll be competitive. And, and I mean, we obviously South Africans, so we're looking at where our medals are going to come from. That That's one potential because, mm. yeah, Semenya was, Semenya was worth two medals and now none. Because, yeah, yeah her, that's an interesting one, actually, because as you said, she she for a time was trying to run the two hundred, um, and was quite close to the Olympic standard there, and then decided because of the risk of injury to go to the five and is nowhere near the Olympic standard there. Yeah. She she ran the other night fifteen fifty seven, which is forty seven seconds off that standard. I mean that's not yeah. She's so, not going to make the final. She's not going to make the yeah. games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the well, if she was line. in the in the semi-final, she wouldn't make the final. Oh, she'd be the, the way they're running now. They'll run fourteen twenty something. Mm. She'd be lapped once, and yeah, I mean, she'd be on the she'd be on the back straight, a lap behind. Mm. So anyway, yeah. it's, it's unlikely. It's really to, tragic yeah. in many ways. Like yeah. So anybody who's been watching the Castor Semenya saga over the last decade, it is tragic. Of interest is that the other one of the other athletes who who was caught up in that whole DSD um, policy is Francine Nianzaba, and she's qualified in the five. Right. So unless Burundi doesn't pick her, and I can't see why they wouldn't, she'll be in Tokyo, mm. which means. <laughs> Again, you have that weird paradox of an athlete who's illegal in the fifteen hundred mm. running a five k. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> that's that's yes. yeah. So many stories outside of just performance based yeah. stories. So for wherever you are in the world, I'm sure that uh, we all have our favourite sports. I, I love watching the swimming. I love watching the the athletics and all the and particularly I love the marathon and the Olympics. I find that you know we've talked about this in this podcast before. When it comes to competing in events, particularly track events, when you don't have pace setters and people who are, are setting paces for mm-hmm. like you see in some of the European events it's it's championship racing at its best and what you see on the track is one-on-one competition and mm-hmm. whoever's the best on the night is the winner of the gold or the silver and the bronze it's very different from what we see in a more sort of uh, you know the, the events that happen in Oslo and the and the um and the Diamond League, yeah, um, where yeah. everything's been set up for fast times. And, you know, you and I have often discussed this, that it, racing, particularly when it comes to any kind of track and field stuff, it's actually the racing that's exciting, not necessarily the time. You know, mm. who, how close was that person? I mean, we watched a couple of weeks ago um, a 5,000 where we saw Cheptegar finishing fifth um, in that event in a great 5,000. So that's going to be an event that's going to be well worth watching all as well. Those, so. All those middle distance races, you know, 800, 15, 5, 10, yeah. they all are fascinating yeah. for that reason. Yeah. And Jakob, I don't... Jakob Ingebrigtsen is going to be somebody to watch as well, isn't he? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see which event he in the picks. Five. Um, is he going for the 10 as well? No, he's likely to go 15, actually, 1,500. Not the double. The du- Not the double. It's so weird. This year they've made the doubles really difficult to do. Yeah. Um, which is a shame because... Because the iconic athletes of the Olympic Games are always those who do the doubles. Yeah. You know, whether it was Wanterana style, I don't think he didn't do it, but he, he was known as a 400, 800 guy. It's the Coavet rivalry from the 80s. Um, it was mm. the Bekele and even even Mo Farah. I don't know his name on my lips, but <laughs> there you go. Um, it's always those guys who become the icons, the, 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 the images of the Olympics. Yeah, and for some reason they've made it so difficult. So, for instance, even in the two four, like Shawna Miller Weibo, was a potential double medal winner there, and she's chosen the two, not the four, because it's just the, the, the way they've done their program. I, I just don't understand it. And it's the same for the fifteen five double, and it's the same for the five ten double on both sides. Like, 
So, yeah, we've mm. been denied the opportunity to see these guys in tw- women twice. Yeah. Which is a pity. Now, scheduling is obviously very complicated because there's lots of factors at play. They don't necessarily I, going to favor one or two athletes that might have a chance of a double. I sort of get that, but... If, if you've had a schedule in 96 that allowed a 200, 400 double, yeah. and you were there, you saw both Perek and Johnson, men and women, did yep. that double. That's right. We've had 1,500, 5,000 doubles. We've, okay, rare, it's rare. Yeah. Uh, Al Garuz so was the one who did that. they just keep the schedules the same, ideally. Yeah, and I suppose yeah. it's got to do with the facility. Like, you can't, because you can't have maybe hammer throw in a distance race because of the danger. I, I, don't, I don't know. And mm. Or if it's a TV thing. But but anyway, it's a shame because mm. we won't necessarily see Ingebrigtsen in one of the two events he might have won. So I think he'll pick the 15. But um, yeah. Uh, anyway, what would I, I would have picked the five tactical race like that. The 1,500 guy is going to win it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Hey, it's fantastic and then to you watch can, as well. And then you say to Chapter Guy, if you want to run 12.41 and from the front and burn me off, then go for it. Yeah, yeah. But if you run 12.55, I'm going to sit on and beat you. Anyway, yeah. fun, <laughs> fun times. We'll see. So much stuff to talk about. And we'll mm. certainly try and bring you uh, some more highlights. Our goal is to try and interview some of the specialists in the individual events that um, we are going to see, hopefully with some rowing and some gymnastics. And So uh, particularly gymnastics, actually. We're struggling to find somebody who would really be an expert to talk to us about gymnastics so if you know anybody let us know on our twitter uh, feed and mm. uh, maybe we can uh, get hold of somebody can we explain some of the ins and outs of gymnastics if you can if you can if you're area. listening to this and you can explain yeah. simply and technically which is mm. paradoxical why simone biles does things that no one else can do yes then please tell us because we want we want to speak to you yes there we go the right. other the other event by the way and i've got a lead on it from a journalist i spoke to is climbing new at the olympics yes fascinating how they train, finger strength. How do you measure the strength of fingers? And do you need long arms or short arms? Do you, yeah. Anyway, it's, we'll do that one too. That's good. We're looking mm. forward to that. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, so let's move on to a subject or a sporting event that's a little bit closer to us than the Olympic Games, although that is pretty close to us now. That is the uh, that is the uh, Tour de France, which is something both Ross and I love watching, and it affects our work schedules, particularly in the afternoons. And when the big <laughs> hill stage is on, I have to take leave. Um, let's just have a have a quick look at the Tour de France this year. Obviously, it's it, it's, it starts in Brittany, four stages in Brittany, and then they've got two time trials, a double ascent of Mont Ventoux, and they've visiting Andorra this year. It looks like the kind of event which doesn't necessarily suit climbers because we've had Tour de France's in the past which are like very heavily favoured. With but very are, few time trial cars. Yeah. This one's got 61, just over 60 time trial climbers. Yeah. So, so fr- from the outset and looking at some of the people that are being touted as favourites here, it looks like a more all-rounders Tour de France 
And I worry a little bit that because we're not going to have as many of those hilltop finishes, Mon Von Tu being an example, we were not actually finishing mm. on Mon Von Tu, even though the race goes up there twice in one day. You, you miss that drama of those hilltop finishes because once there's a descent on the other side, there's always a chance of somebody being able to to, to, to motor back with the team. Um, so, I mean, what's your assessment to looking at the route and looking at what we've seen in the past of Tour de France? Uh, pretty much what you said. Um I think there are three summit finishes, right? There's one in the Alps. They finish on Teens, the ski resort. And then there's a double finish in the Pyrenees. Or is there a third one? I forget. But I know the, 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 there are five Pyrenean days and only two in the Alps. So yeah. this year's tour is a little bit light on the mountains in the first while. And then it, yeah. it backloads them nicely. So the Wednesday, the last Wednesday of the tour features a, a triple climb finish, which is looks like a really decisive stage maybe and then the f- thursday is the tourmalet luzardi den climb so that that's really where if, if i'm a climber that's where i'm you know holding out for having having said all that if if this tour had a lot of mountain finishes we'd still be talking about the same four or five guys yes as we're talking about anyway but there are a couple of guys um lopez for instance who recently there was a race on one one two i don't know if you saw that he he won that race with the fastest climb of Mon Von Tu since 2004, which says a great deal <laughs> about his climbing legs and yeah. his lungs. So he he's a guy who probably would expect to lose minutes in the 60Ks of time trialing. So he has to liven the tour up before the finishing summits. Yeah. So so that's where maybe you start to see attacks 5K from the summit of Mon Von Tu, even though there's a 20K descent down to the finish line. Yeah. Um, because I'm like you, I when when you don't finish at the top, you just introduce <laughs> a necessary cautiousness, mm. caution, conservatism. Yeah. Um, where everyone wants to watch one another, and you know, if you gain thirty seconds, you're not holding on to that. No. If five guys are hunting you on the descent, unless you are seriously taking risks and, and I can't see yeah well descending is becoming a bit of an art now mm. I mean the, yeah, now they've stopped the d- different positions and they're sitting on top of the top bar it's, it's not as aggressive as it used to be but mm. certainly but that, is that, that favours a group of four or five I'd yeah. have thought rather than the guy out in front so yeah, yeah. so yeah the, the, anyway it's it, I think it's an intriguing tour the, the pattern will be interesting you know because mm. um, you got the first time trial on the Wednesday yep. and it's long enough that there could be some big gaps between guys having bad days you know if you if you are a climber and you don't do a decent time trial you might find yourself a minute minute and a half down mm. and that's a that's a pretty big gap then again yeah. Pogacar lost a minute and a half last year on stage seven mm. and he as you know caught it up and won well, I mean, let's just have a brief look at the first week, and obviously we're going to yeah. sort of keep up to date with all the new stuff as it's happening throughout the three weeks or 21 stages. So the first couple of days, what's very interesting is that it almost resembles a bit of a classics finish because mm. you've got two small hill finishes on day one and day two, um, which will hopefully really favour the punches. Yeah, and so Philippe would be saying, "Yeah, I'm, Julian's going to love that. <laughs> I'm going to be in yellow by Sunday night. You yeah. know? Like that's that said, Mathieu van der Poel is going to be saying yes, the same. Absolutely. And potentially, and this is one of the questions is like, how good is Van Art going to be? Yeah. You know, I was looking earlier this year, Tirreno Adriatico, Van Art won the first stage, second on stage two. I think he was third on stage three. He got another top three and then he won the final time trial. Yeah. So he was in outrageous condition. Um, he's since had an appendix operation. 
And I saw him saying the other day that he doesn't believe that he's in the same condition as last year and his focus is not going to be the green jersey. Okay. Uh, it'll be most likely one or two stage wins, protecting Roglic, and then maybe helping Roglic in the mountains. But, but yeah, there's, there's four or five guys who could win. I think on Saturday, stage one finishes on a 3K climb at 5.7%. Yep, that's right. And on Sunday is a 2K climb at 6.5%, yep. but, with, but with like 10% ramps at the beginning of each. Yeah. So that's really good, great for the Alaphilippe, Fanapool, Fan Art types. We also know Roglic likes those. Yeah. Um, it was at Flesh Vallon earlier this year. In fact, we were sitting in this office watching that together. And remember, he went for it and he, he blew everyone away, yeah. but then blew himself up <laughs> with 100 to go and Alaphilippe caught him. So it'll be interesting to see, like, will Roglic and Pogacar go for those time bonuses in the first week? And both of them are capable of actually doing yeah, well. Yeah, because then, of course... Um, they've got puncher-like qualities themselves. Well, Pogacar won a flat sprint against Alaphilippe right. the week after. Alaphilippe beat Droglic in the Flesh Volant. So <laughs> these guys, that that was at Liège, Bastogne-Liège. I think Pogacar outsprinted the field. Yeah. So they could all, if they wanted to, go for it. The yep. question is, and, and this happened in the Giro, was remember Bernal and Avonpool in the first week went for some of the time bonus sprints, is do you want to burn your matches Mm. on day one and two and I mean these guys are so well conditioned that they can do it but you you can't do it all the time and so physiologically speaking the, the tour is about physiology management it's it's a budget except your budget has two or three currencies you know there's your anaerobic sprint budget which says that you've got three 45 seconds efforts in your legs in in the whole race there's your sustainable power budget which says you've got an hour and a half of steady climbing at 6.1 watts a kilo and then there's the endurance budget to cover the other 3,000 kilometers in between and how do you allocate that over the course of three weeks is really interesting um, because yeah. bad days as we saw last year could cost you a minute and a half good days might gain you 30 seconds so <laughs> you have to be quite careful i think what's interesting to sort of explain to those that are not don't watch as much cycling as as maybe the rest of us do is that what's interesting about the tour de france and you look at we've looked at, at heart rates of uh, pro riders over the last uh, sort of year or so to see how they perform in those big stage events so when we look at a a, a race like the tour de france not every stage is hard for every rider. No. Um, for a lot of those riders, they're literally saving themselves to the stages that matter. For those who want to win a stage, they will target a certain stage. They will say, right, stage five looks good for me. If I can get in the break, I've got a chance of winning that. Um, for the, the GC contenders, it's about literally preserving any kind of energy expenditure until it is absolutely needed and they're protected by the team. So yeah. it's not like every racer is racing flat out for a four hours a day they're yeah not. and I often mean, they're cruising along at a relatively comfortable pace for pro riders yeah we're talking 80 hours of more actually and out of those 80 hours only one and a half are decisive to the to the race yeah and so the question is did you allocate your one and a half hours correctly so that's mm -hmm. exactly right and at the risk of like majorly dumbing it down the the peloton cruising along at 40k an hour in a bunch on a flat day the guys in the middle are just being sucked along at mm -hmm. 90 watts I remember in the Giro, there was actually a conversation because they showed a stat, and I wrote this for your magazine, where Bernal had been going, I think, 43k an hour for the first hour at an average watts of 90. Yeah. And people said, well, is that all it takes? Like, I could do this. Well, 
if they let you, yes, because what they didn't pick up on is that the, the peak power for 30 seconds was like 900. Yeah. So what's happening is there's an attack, the brake is trying to get formed, the peloton doesn't like the composition of the brake and they respond to those attacks and now all of a sudden Bernal, who weighs like, like I don't know, 50-something kilos soaking wet, has to produce... 10 or 15 watts a kilogram for a few seconds. And if he doesn't do that, then he's in for a long day out. Yeah. So that's the, that's the difference is it's a, it's anyway. So the, the, the point is that, yes, it's overall, it's an easy effort. Yes. But it's interspersed with like unbelievable efforts, especially in the mountains mm. and the time trials, because we're going to see 40 minutes at 5.9 to 6 watts a kilo. We're going to see 20 minutes at 6.2, 6.3. And we're going to see, these these first two stages, I mean, they're going to be one at eight to nine watts a kilogram for the last two three minutes. Yeah. So that's when that's when you're going to see the power. That's when the numbers get a bit scary for yeah. for the yeah. for the mortals. Because I think the some t- the, the perception that we often have with Tour de France riders is that they're capable of a long sustained efforts, but actually what they're doing is they're actually not they're, they're more capable of short sustained efforts to be able to maintain and have the right to ride for those long sustained efforts right and that's where you get yeah. like the physiology that's like eyebrow raising is when you get people who can do both yeah because now you've got guys who are sitting on the front for 30 minutes on a on a finishing climb at eight percent cruising along at 5.9 six watts a kilo but then two days earlier they were sprinting at 1,500 watts for 20 seconds. And so yeah. that's where you get like this weird physiology, you know, and it's, it is interesting and it does raise certain questions, mm. but, but certainly you, you get that range more on a bicycle than you do running. I mean, you're never going to see Usain Bolt running a 5K. No. In fact, you'll never see Usain Bolt running a 400-meter race. Okay, maybe he, could, he, he yeah. did do those. But, yeah. but an 800, he, he, they, they drop mm. off precipitously. Mm. And similarly, Kipchoge is not mm. matching up well in a 100 but in cycling, you you get you get a bigger range, mm. but um, but you're right. It's 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 a it's a story with like many different subplots. And if you and and we'll try and shed light on some of those for you over the course of the race, hopefully. So let's talk about some of the favourites. And of course, last year it was the winner was uh, Tadej Pogacar, and um, we've heard via the grapevine that his numbers are better than they were for last year's tour. Uh, but let's face it, last year's tour, he wasn't the favourite until that second last stage. He only really won it against all expectations on that second yeah, last stage. Yeah, he, he had, a, he had a, an unusual tour because he was, he was properly under the radar. Yeah. It's in part, and I mean, it's not a good thing, but he lost, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, he lost a minute and a half on stage seven when he was caught up by a combination of a mechanical and a surge on the front in some crosswinds that split the peloton. So he came into the finish that day a minute and a half down. The next day he attacked on the parasword and he got 40 seconds back and then he kept chipping away. Now, it's interesting to speculate, and these are ifs and buts, but if he hadn't lost the 90 seconds, then then would the likes of Roglic been as uh, generous allowing him to attack? And in fact, would that have made a difference? Because he was yeah. he was just really good. <laughs> Sometimes it's not like I'm giving you permission to attack me. You just actually are faster than me. But but he, you know, the, the the benefit of losing that time is that he never had to control the race. He could, uh, and he was clever. He's tactically very sharp, I think, because he didn't have a team. Remember last year, it was about Roglic and Jumbo Visma. Yeah, Pogacar just surfed their wheels, 
And he managed to always be in the right place at the right time, pick up the time that he needed. And then, of course, he produced that incredible time trial at the end. This year, the situation is different, I think. I don't see... Um, he still doesn't have a particularly strong team, though. Certainly stronger than last year. Like yeah. they have, they've had McNulty. But not in the same level of Ineos Grenadiers or um, no. But no one, no one's yeah. there. I mean, Ineos yeah. Grenadiers. I mean, that's they got the, three contenders. Yeah, the Tour de France. <laughs> the Tour de France is going to be run by a locomotive on the front wearing black and red or whatever color they've got. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Dave Ralsford said, by the way, we have to change our tactics. It's like Dave. Just could you stop lying for one second? <laughs> like this is what you've done for ten years: is just put a team on the front at five point nine once a kilo, and nobody can attack you. That's what you're going to do this year too. Like there's no doubt that's going to be the approach. But um, yeah, he's got a stronger team now this year with UAE. They've certainly built a team around him, so there's there's going to be pressure on him. There's no doubt, yeah. and that's interesting. Remember Bernal won it in twenty nineteen, and suddenly there was pressure, and we saw that that didn't. He didn't wear that so well. He was mm. unlucky with injuries. But that's – it's hard to defend for that mm. reason. So That's a waste of expectation, I think, exactly. to some extent. You realize that, you know, last year Pogaccio was somebody that if he'd won and he'd done well, it was, you know, he'd he'd, mm. he'd done it again, expectations, relatively. Because of now, his age. Absolutely. And, yeah. Young man. So, so that yeah. he doesn't have that luxury this yeah. year. So it'll be interesting It'll to be see mocked. how that plays out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, he yeah. has been training in Sestri, eh? Yep which you say is around about 2,000 metres above sea level. I mean, about the, that. it's talked very briefly about that. Why do athletes train at altitude for events that are taking place at uh, at relatively low levels? Well, for the tour, two reasons. One is obvious, is that when you ride the tour, you're going to be at 2,000 metres quite a lot. Mm. I think this year there are three climbs that get up to 2,000. Mont but only in the second week, really, don't they? Mont Ventoux's at 1.9. Mm. Um, the Alps takes them to close to two. I think Teens is just on two. The highest point is 2.4, I think we saw. Yeah. And when you start getting that high, I mean, the air is thin. So what's happening there is the partial pressure of the air is lower. And so it is more difficult for oxygen to get into your lungs. As a result, you have less oxygen in the blood and therefore less at the muscles. And so performance is compromised by altitude to the extent of, and this is in non-adapted people, for every 1,000 meters you go up, your maximal capacity drops by about 6%. So by the time you're at the top of Mont Ventoux or uh, the Tourmalet, which is just over 2,000 meters, Lizardi Dens 1.7, your VO2 max is going to be about 10 to 12% lower than it was down the bottom. But what I, I guess the question I'm asking and is they're only really getting to those high mountains in stage seven onwards. Yes. Does the effect of training at altitude still carry itself right. forward? Right. So that's why I said, remember, there's two reasons. So the one is directly, if I don't learn to cope with lower PO2s, then that altitude effect on those days is going to hurt me more than if I'm adapted. Right. So an altitude adapted person is not losing 6% per 1,000 meters. They're losing two or three. And so therefore, their performance impairments on the Tourmalet, Mont Ventoux and so on are going to be suppressed compared to the guy who's not adapted. Make right. sense? So there's a direct benefit. And he said that adaption will last long enough yeah. than, than a week or so. Yeah, because, and again, this is this is why they always say the Colombians come into their own in the high mountains because mm. that, that adaptation for them is basically permanent. They've got high altitude. Well, they were born there, yeah. High, high yeah. altitude ancestry. And we've got data, incidentally, on canyons that shows that when you have ancestry, you have literally a, a, an improved ability to supply oxygen to your brain. Like So a sea level native deoxygenates their brain, which is not good. <laughs> mm. Whereas the Kenyans, even at maximal exercise, their capacity to keep the oxygen supply 
almost normal is much better. So, so it's almost genetic. Well, it's yeah, it's it's What's, genetic and inherited over many yeah. generations of genetics, mm. which is really very interesting. So yeah. high altitude ancestry, more than just living, makes a difference. So <laughs> that means that Pogachar they could live in Sestria, but they may never fully overcome that difference. But you overcome it enough that it doesn't become decisive. But the indirect reason, this is the I think what you were alluding to is there is the school of thought that if you train at altitude and you come back to sea level, you get a benefit in performance over and above training at sea level. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanism for that, and in fact, the, the even the existence of this is contentious. Um, one of the things that happens at altitude, and you'd know this because you've done it yourself, is if we go up to Johannesburg, which is at 1600, you just can't train very hard. Yeah. Like you, you're, you're, you're limited by the thin air. Yeah, and so your quality of There's training of petrol coming into the engine, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yes, if petrol is oxygen, that's exactly what's happening, yeah. and so your quality of training drops, and so what you gain because the theory, remember, is that the low oxygen levels in the air, the PO two, is going to trigger your body to make more red blood cells, and so mm. you're going to get these adaptations that you're going to hold with you when you go back down to sea level. It's almost like natural enhanced blood cell production, which is the same thing you're doing when you dope, but naturally, right? Um, The problem is that what you gain in terms of red blood cells, you might lose in terms of training quality and neuromuscular adaptations and whatever else goes into cycling performance. So if you're going really hard and you have more oxygen available than you would have to right. you have in sea level, you could potentially push your muscles harder to harder efforts at sea level. At sea level, So it's yeah. a case of sleeping what's it, sleeping higher, training low. And that's, that's why yeah. that system evolved, exactly. Mm. was now we could sleep high and get the, the, the oxygen benefit for the blood cells. But when we wanted to do the hard training, we go down where there's more oxygen in the air and we can still hit the targets. I remember going to a conference in Colorado Springs where – the US and Olympic biathlon champion and his coach were speaking and they were talking about how they would they would plan if you if you were doing short intervals you had to be at sea level because that all that matters was intensity yeah if you weren't hitting and this was skiing now cross-country skiing if you weren't hitting your targets for those two or three minutes you're wasting the session if you're doing medium length or long intervals you do them at middle altitudes but if you're doing slow base mileage you go to high high altitudes so you fit the training to the altitude now that's that's the paradigm that's then used and so if u.s swimming for instance they do altitude camps at very specific times of the year because it's when they're going to be doing long slow distance miles in the pool when they introduce this the speed work and the intervals now we have to start thinking about phasing out altitude and focusing on quality so it makes sense right you match the training requirement and it comes back to what we've spoken about in the last few podcasts, that concept of specificity mm. is you, you're looking for a specific benefit and the environment facilitates that or stops it, as the case may be. So the question is, I mean, there is technology now with these altitude tents and mm. hyperbaric chambers and that sort of thing. Why does a guy like, I mean, I, I suppose it's, we just have to hypothesize about these things, but why does a guy like Pogachar go to Sestriere when he could sleep in a altitude tent and live at the coast mm, because he, he wants the the terrain 
Okay. So that's that counts. I mean, Sestri as a climb, you may know it if you've been following the tour. Armstrong emerged as a tour rider by winning a stage on, well, he won a time trial and so on. But mm. that was when everyone said, hey, this guy can climb. Yeah. <laughs> the story is told slightly differently if you're David Walsh or, or some of those <laughs> um, French journalists who said, whoa, this guy can climb. Yeah. Something is wrong here. Um, but it, you're looking for terrain. I mean, you've got, you've got alpine passes everywhere you look. I mean, no matter which way you go, is down and then up. <laughs> yeah. So that, that counts for a lot. And that's why they go to Mount Teed, I think, is where a lot of them go in Tenerife for the similar reason. Mm. Amazing terrain to train in. Plus the fact that you get a camp. Uh, you get to go away with your team. You get to recon maybe some of the climbs. I don't know whether they were doing that now or, or earlier. I know Roglic was doing recons of certain stages, the time trial. The day after he won the Basque Country, there was footage of him time trialing the, the Tour de France's opening TT. So so they do it for that reason. And then as I mentioned, the direct benefit is you, you have to cycle at those altitudes in order to teach the body what it feels like to cycle with that little air around. Mm. Because you know, there's going to be five occasions in the Tour de France where you can't avoid it. So you might as well get accustomed to that stress. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. 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 Let's look at some other favorites. One of the interesting things about uh, both Pogacar and Roglic is that neither of them did the traditional warm-up events, the Tour mm. de Suisse and the, um, the Dauphiné. Uh, it's obviously been talked about on every single cycling website that I've been mm. lo- looking at in the last couple of months. But the idea that somebody rests before a big event like the Tour de France, it seems unusual because to some extent – Chris Froome used to say this, you go into the Tour de France slightly undertrained so that you kind of use the Tour to build yourself up. That's why the Tour is designed the way it is. Mm. What do you think the logic behind Roglic and Pogacar not racing those events are? And do you, is it an experiment of two? Well, yeah, I mean, it is because uh, when you've read all those articles and I have too, but I've got so many numbers jumbled in my head. When was the last time a Tour when it didn't come from a Dauphiné or Swiss Tour? I don't, I don't know, but I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's well known. Yeah. It's a long yeah. time ago. They've always the Dauphiné winner is always right up there in the Tour de France. So. Yeah, or you at least have to do the Dauphiné. You'll finish yeah. maybe third or fourth, but yeah. like you've done it at least. Yeah. Um. So sorry. So you asked, what's the what's the logic? Yeah. So um, I mean, what what are the what are the? Well, I mean, we know that keeping the legs turning, being competitive, <laughs> being race fit. Is there such thing as race fit? Yeah. So semi tongue in cheek, depending on your level of cynicism, you might have reasons <laughs> to to argue for why someone want to escape and and well, let's and, let's, let's but, avoid but, the cynic, but cynical I think, approach. I, I think Roglic, <laughs> I think Roglic has said that he knows how to prepare for these races. He, he, he does have a remarkable track record of consistent, strong finishes. I don't think he's ever not finished in a podium position unless he's crashed out and not finished the race at all. And even when that happened, like we saw in Paris-Nice this year, he was leading the race when it happened. Um, last year's Dauphiné, I mean, he still finished the race, but last year's Dauphiné pulled out while in the leader's jersey. So he he's shown, I think, consistently that he knows how to prepare. And I think after last year, He's probably said, I got it slightly wrong last year. I didn't have the necessary power by maybe one day. And so I'm going to go away this year and, and consolidate how I know to prepare. And that's, that can be the only rationale is we believe that we can condition better in training than races would have allowed us to Yeah, because of control. I mean, that's what it boils down to. It's, it's I've got the control now to do a 20K climb at the tempo that I think I need to do. Whereas in a race you can't predict because you have to respond to other people and be reactive. So I think that's the main reason there. For Pogacar, he did the Tour of Slovenia, which was 
I think a fairly soft race when you look at who he beat. Yeah, but there might have been wasn't there, yeah. there might have been personal, potentially sponsorship reasons to do that rather than the other races. But also, I think it's it, it boils down to I think the same thing is that by doing that race, you're not going to be exposed to massively unpredictable situations. Yeah, you're not going to be attacked on days when you're potentially not super strong because your training's not right. So let's rather control as much as we can. And I think what it speaks to is that in in the sport, they used to race to get fit. I think that the sophistication of preparation now is that they don't think they need racing to get fit. Yeah. They think that they can simulate it well enough because of power meters, because of indoor trainers, because they've got squatted environments that they can actually do it without needing to race. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that last year, um, before the Tour de France, obviously Roglic was very competitive at the Dauphiné, and and therefore he was that was a good build-up. And let's face it, he 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 didn't win the Tour de France, but he was pretty close to winning oh, the Tour de France. Super close. But so, but Jim, yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I, I kind of look at this, and my gut feeling is ten weeks of non-racing. The last time he raced was in Liège, Bastogne Liège, where he got dropped. Yeah, Pogacar yeah. won. Psychologically, he's on the back foot going into the Tour because of you know Pogacar's having beaten him. Yeah, although he'll say, hey, Basque Country was the last tour that I rode. Yeah. True. Multi-stage yeah. race and still, look at how I went there. You yeah. Know? So still. he won that. But yeah. but yes, remember last year though, we said, even during the tour, okay, and I'm not going to be all Captain Hindsight here and say, oh, we knew that he wouldn't <laughs> win. But we did, we did, I distinctly remember saying that like the one thing about Roglic is he always has a bad day, yeah. which he did. And then he had it again in the Vuelta, but he hung on. Mm-hmm. But also how much he races. Like he, he, was he raced just a lot. Unbelievable amounts. Yeah, he like, did. Yes. And last year Very was a consistent. super compressed season because of COVID and the yeah. lockdown. But but when it started up, I mean, Roglic was basically in every single, like you couldn't avoid the guy. Yeah. And I, I think maybe they've said, you know what, like all the eggs in one basket now. Let's, we we believe we know how to prepare and we're going to go away. And I think Pogacar saying the same thing. Yeah. Remember Pogacar raced UAE and that was like in, that was the first big race of the year. Then Adriatica so they've he he's also had a long season, but with relatively sparse racing, and I think it says both those guys are backing their conditioning more than their race um, specific fitness. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some of the guys who did the do the traditional warm up, yeah. and of course Richie Port, who. I want to put it out there. I think he's he's my pick for the Tour de France, actually. I think he raced the Dauphiné really well, mm. and he's got a lot of experience. And he's kind of always been the always man um, of Grand Tour racing. Never quite there. He's had some unfortunate accidents in the past when he's been up there, thereabouts. He's one of the you know three guys on the Ineos Grenadiers team with Carapaz and uh, Grant Thomas mm. as as a potential winner there. Um, the, the Grenadiers are interesting because they literally do have three leaders, even though Grant Thomas has been shown and has been announced as the leader of the team. Yeah, and that's always interesting. I mean, remember when it was Movistar, they had um, Valverde, Quintana and Lander yeah, all in the same tour. And it ended up being a total disaster because they couldn't they couldn't allocate resources properly. And so mm. that's, the, that's the danger for Ineos because, you know, what happens if Thomas is gapped in the Alps? Now, do Carapaz and, and Port wait because they're going to go for it or they're going to let him? And I'm sure they will. They'll just let the race unfold the way that it's meant to. And if Thomas can't fulfill the leader's obligations, he loses the leadership. But that that potentially creates some tricky situations. You know, the, the first time trial, you would imagine Carapaz loses time to both of Thomas and Port. Yes. 
but which of Thomas and Port? Mm. If one of those has a particularly average day and loses, say, 30, 40 seconds to the other, does that change the hierarchy and the structure? So there's some interesting tactical questions there. You know, when, when Bernal won the Giro, he was supported by Danny Martinez. Yeah. And you'll you remember that in the last week of the Giro, Bernal was dropped by Yates, and then on another occasion, Caruso was going away from him. There was never a doubt that Martinez was going to stay with Bernal. He was, he was clearly there as his second guy. And remember, there was those pictures of him actually like waving and encouraging Bernal. Yeah. Everyone said, this is what you need a teammate for. Is the same thing likely if Thomas is dropped and Port and Carapaz are the ones with him? And yeah. they've only lost 20 seconds to him at that point in the race. And now Pogacar has gone off on the climb towards Teens or, or Luzardi Den or whatever now. So, so that's, that's where it gets interesting because there's no, there's no clear second supporter. For, yeah. those, for those guys, whereas Bernal had that. Because once you go beyond those three, they've got Gagan Hart, they've got some good guys. Yeah, for sure. But the way you could see it is when it comes down to the last five or six, it's those three, Pogacar, Roglic, Lopez, yeah. uh, Uran maybe, he was good in um, yeah, great good time trial of Switzerland, yeah, yeah. good at the time trial. So anyway, the, the, the point is that depending on how this thing unfolds, that could become quite a nice <laughs> sub story is who leads Ineos. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you to stick your neck out then on the Tour de France. Who's your yeah. pick? Uh, I can't I can't see beyond Pogacar like if if he has a if he has a safe race. Um hmm. if it's true that he's in better shape than he was last year. Roglic Roglic is is known unknown. I mean, it's, that's what's so interesting about him. Mm. Like we know how he races these tours. But he hasn't raced for so long that you don't know. But I think it's I think it's those two guys. I don't think Ineos have the firepower to beat the two Slovenians. Mm. So I think it's the same as last year. And just because I think you'll say Pogacar, I'm going to say Roglic. I'm going to say Richie Port. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah, okay. I know it's a bit of an outlier situation. Field. Left field. I think he's got a chance. I think he's got confidence, and uh, we'll see. I mean, he's he's, he's certainly. And if you look at the, the the bookies, they will tell you that Pogacar and Roglic must be the big favourites. But mm. I, I always like that guy that's sort of right behind them because they might be fighting it out and Port just comes through and sneaks a couple of seconds here and there yeah. and while they're watching each other. So who knows? Port. Could be fascinating. Yeah, you said just now, always guy, the Nelly man. Type yeah, thing. he always he, has The problem been. for him is if he can just get through without a bad day, then then for sure. Port, Port seems to me to always be a safe bet for a podium, but a risky bet for a win. It's one of those guys, you know. <laughs> Um, but then again, like Roglic is a safe bet for a podium anyway, yeah. and so is Pogacar. Yeah. And then again, Thomas. And anyway, I think it's a <laughs> super competitive tour. And then, of course, Lopez. And by the way, there's this guy. Marcel Mark, Woods is in there as well. He's Ma- also Mark Padun, who nobody knew about yeah. two weeks ago. Yeah. This guy from Bahrain, Victoria, suddenly climbed the fastest ever on the Zoo Plan, I think it was. Yeah. And the fastest ever on, what was the other one they did in the, in the Dauphiné? Uh. Um, um, yes, but mean. he got in the break and he was out on his own and he still climbed it faster than the chasers. It was outrageous. Um, guy you'd never heard of, really. Yeah. So yeah. that'll be interesting to see if he's got that same condition in the Tour de France. So there's a few, there's a few uh, outliers who could disrupt the race. Yeah. But but if I had to if I had to give you the conservative estimate, it would be Pogacar. But I'll say yeah. Roglic just because. We like to be different. Yeah, and and I think last year he was the he was the best guy over three weeks, mm. 
and he was really not good over one hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and then as for, okay, then we haven't even spoken. This year's tour is a proper King of the Mountains tour because it's got a lot of climbs that aren't going to be contested by the GC guys, but where you can rack up points, I think. Yes. So I think you'll see quite a competitive Polka Dot Jersey race. Mm. David Gaudu maybe, if he's not in – see, he's going for the GC, but the, the, the Polka Dots will go to a guy who loses time early and then finds himself the luxury of breakaways to win the jersey. And then the green jersey, pick that. Well, the green jersey is interesting because Sam Bennett's not riding for the Quick right. so Step. That's right, so defending And they've chosen that old guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he's. I think they call him Father Time now. Mark Cavendish is in that team. That's a very surprising um, – yeah, I mean, Chance, it's, it? I mean, it's, it's either very incredible. simple if you believe the story about a knee injury, or it's very complex if you read what his boss has said. <laughs> so, yes, there's definitely no love lost between so, the bosses of Dukunik Quickstep and Sam Bennett. Certainly not anymore. Yeah, for sure. So he's leaving That's the sad. team. I mean, if he wasn't before, he definitely is now. Yeah. But his boss basically said he's not sure about the knee injury, in case you missed this, listeners. Um, but he thinks it might just be that he's mentally – did he say mentally weak or not yeah. tough enough or something like something that? Something like that, yeah. But anyway, he questioned so, his mental abilities. Yeah. yeah. So no Bennett. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the defending champion, the Green Jersey, is not going to be there, mm. which is probably – that's I mean, that's an unusual thing to happen. Mm. There's a couple yeah. of stages where like a Sargon will go on the tack, I reckon. Yeah. And he'll rack up 40 points, win the stage – do it again a couple of days later and that puts him out of sight because he'll come between third and fifth in every other finish mm. line sprint. Yeah. So that'll be So maybe Sagan can win Sagan another maybe. green jersey. You know, yeah, the thing the thing about Van Art is I think you'll be committed to Roglic. So yeah. that that takes him out of that one. Because otherwise he's the guy who'll get in the breaks. Mm. Mm. I mean if 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 Sagan and Roglic uh, if Sagan and Van Art are on a break and there's a cat three climb, I know who I'm backing there. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know, and then and then you'll have then you've got the pure sprinters who'll pick up stage wins, but I think yeah. will lose enough points. Caleb Ewan, those types. Yeah. yeah. For so sure. yeah, that, I think all the all the jerseys will be interesting, but it's yeah, um, yeah Ooh, it, it's it's such a backloaded tour that really I was going to say we'll know in the first week, but we won't. Uh, one thing I always love about the Tour de France is once we see a couple of the, you know, we look back on the, the, the sort of glory days of the 80s, the 90s, and all the grand champions that we've had on the Tour, and you think, well, once those guys retire, I remember when uh, Alberto Contador retired a couple of years ago, I thought, well, that's really the end of exciting grand tour racing because he was a real animator. But, you know, arguably we're having more exciting racing than we've ever had in grand tour and cycling level, both in the classics, because we've got the White Van Arts and the Matteo van der Poels and all those kind of riders participating. So it is mm. exciting to watch, and every year there's a new b- bunch of youngsters coming up to take on the, and there'll no doubt be some surprises that we've never mentioned or even written about um, mm. across the various websites that will come through. People say we never heard of that guy. I mean, there is a uh, risk. You say you say when Contador retired, it get dull, and it did. It did a bit. I mean, yeah, it for, did. There for was a, a year. period there for a couple of years where it was just it was this metronomic yeah. train at six watts a kilo. Yeah, and it's the physiology of that, by the way, is if you're going at six and you're at the front, and you're going to give a 15-minute effort. The guy behind you is benefiting a little bit. So he's at 5.9. He can do 20 minutes. Mm. The guy behind him is at 5.8. He'll do 25. Nobody's attacking off that pace because it's so close to everyone's functional threshold power or their steady state or if you want to call it their their W prime Mm. or whatever you want to call it, the critical power, sorry, not W prime, critical power, that you can't attack off that pace. And it really neutralizes the race. And I think what's helped – a, Pogacar seems to attack off any pace, which is mm. cool. And then the relative weakness of Ineos last year actually made cycling more entertaining. Yeah. 
And so the biggest, the biggest concern, the biggest risk for a boring race is that Ineos just stick six guys on the front and like just neutralize and yeah. crush resistance. It's yeah. anyway. So I hope that doesn't happen. I don't happen, think that's going to happen. Yeah. I so think cycling has changed a lot in the last year because of COVID and all sorts of other things. There's lots of animators in there mm. at the moment. And the Koenig always love the flat stages. There's a bit of wind, mm. things pick up a bit there as well. So And then the pure you know, climbers, you know, the yeah. Lopez we mentioned, yeah. Padun. I mean, these guys are going to lose minutes in the time trials, as yeah. we said. So they have to do something when it goes uphill. Mm. So I think that will be interesting. So yeah. we'll, yeah, the, the, and there'll be there'll be other stories. I mean, yeah. nutrition in the tour is a fascinating topic. Yeah. So how do you get in four thousand calories a day in addition to your living expen your living expenditure? Yeah. So there's there's loads of. Cool things, Interesting things to discuss. And of course, you're taking on a challenge yourself on the Tour de France. <laughs> Don't publicise it. Because well, no. I, I'm going to have to publicise <laughs> it because uh, for those of you that follow Ross on Strava, you'll be able to see how he does. I, I, th- I think you, you've conservatively said you're going to try 50% of the Tour. Every day. Every day. And you're going to see how you feel after the first week. There's been lots of other people who are doing various things. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not going to see how I feel. I'm going to go for you're gonna, the whole, You're going to go time. for 21 days. But okay. if work, you see, this is the problem. It's like yeah. I've got, I've got work. You still got to work. <laughs> so when am I going to do these things? Like I'm not going to sit on the indoor. I can see myself actually if work gets busy, sitting on the indoor at ten o'clock at night, riding until one in the morning. Hundred and you know what it'll be, hundred and twenty k's on the indoor. But um, make sure you've I mean, got I'm your looking, chamois cream. I'm looking out the window and the rain is flying sideways. Yeah. If this doesn't let up, I might not make the first weekend. Exactly. But anyway, I'm going to. It's try. interesting though because. For us here on bicycling, there's a couple of people who are pushing various different iterations of a Tour de France challenge. So yeah. even something as little as doing 10% of the Tour, I've done that a couple of times. It, it gives you a, a sense of what the riders go through because you have your long days, your short days, your recovery days, your, mon- your the two Mondays you have off. off. Mm. You, you get a sense of what recovery has to be like every day. And for those of you that are looking for a little boost in your, ex- in your exercise, that regularity, <laughs> and we talk about this often, Often in our podcast, the consistency of riding 21 days in three weeks, no matter what that distance, whether it's an hour a day or, in your case, for like four hours a day. Yeah, I'm, I'm bargaining on three and a half hours a day average, yeah. which is, which is so a that's, lot. It's a lot. So to be charitable, I should call it the 70% time of the Tour de France challenge. It makes yes. it sound better than 50 of the distance. Because <laughs> I'm certainly not going to be averaging 37 k's an hour like they do. No, over, 40, over, 47 over, kilometers an hour times. I think I looked actually because I, I said I'm going to try to do 50% of the tour at 67% of the speed. Right. And I think they average 37, so I've got to hit 26. But 37 is the average across the whole tour, is it? Yeah, the finishing okay. by the time they reach Paris. But yeah. the, And then the other thing is, okay, there's boredom. Um, yeah, because tough. the thing in Cape Town is we've got unbelievable routes, but only about five of them. Yes. <laughs> because there's, because of the mountain, there's really only like three big roads. So you can only create like six combinations. Mm. And so after the 1,500th kilometer on the same stretch of road, I mm. think that might be a problem. Um, and then the other thing is like the nutrition, you know. And yeah. I'm interested to see how like heart rate, for instance, when you start to like do hours and hours and hours, your heart rate gets suppressed because yeah. your sympathetic nervous system is and your legs can't drive your heart. And So there's a few. So there's a part of you that is experimenting with yourself a little bit, yeah. I suspect Have a Have you lot, got a nutrition plan? A larger a part rice? of me. A lot of pasta. A lot of pasta. And well, if you like Chris Froome, Froome says rice is better than pasta. Okay. He says so you're either a rice guy or a pasta guy I'll in the peloton. Pasta. You're I'll a pasta, pasta guy. Yeah. Okay. 
So I've got to find guy. I've got to find people who are going to cook for me. I don't, <laughs> time I don't to cook, cook, especially the. But volume. you don't have the advantage of a masseur coming every day. There's, there's that. Yeah. My, my my best mate's Richard's wife does massages, so, so you get, I've, I've booked her for the rest days. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be taken care of. <laughs> right, good idea. Anyway, now that you've told everyone about this, let me yeah, go and let exciting. me go and uh, taper. Well, I'll, I've, I've I've committed to at least riding a couple of those uh, days with you, so at least we can. Uh, I'm going to need the have somebody to ride with. The uh, boredom, yeah. the boredom yeah. of doing them all, because I reckon. If there's what are the nineteen riding days, and the other and the other nice thing is, days. well, there's two rest days. Oh, oh but no, because no. of the two, yes, you're yeah, right. Twenty one, twenty one stages. stages no. You're right. I forgot no. they start on the Saturday and end yeah. Sunday. The other cool thing is, there's a time trial. Uh, okay, so it's half for me. So it's mm. fourteen and a half k the first one. Yeah, and at the end I do fifteen k. So that's basically an FTP. Yes. So I'll do an FTP at the start and end, and I'll see. You're not exactly. going to go easy on those days. Just take no, no, a rest. those those will be max efforts because you want, I wanna, you want it to be like the tour. Yeah, I want to see. And I want to see how, how much I drop off. Okay. Between there. Are you going to check your weight? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to weigh body fat. Oh, yeah. I'm going to try and do as much as I can. Okay. Because, like, that's the fun of it well, for I'm me. Well, we're, we're, we're definitely going to keep an eye on that because it'll be interesting uh, to see what happens to you over the next uh, It would be cool to measure. Weeks. In fact, now that I'm saying it, I should actually try and get a blood test done, you know, and yeah. see if I can measure cortisol and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to spend thousands on a hobby. <laughs> But, yeah, but it's a good experiment, and I think it'll be fun. Yeah, to, I'll to be try. fascinated to listen to it. I'm sure most of our listeners will yeah, too. Yeah, even though it is only. I mean, look, we talk about it. It's only fifty percent, but anyways, only. Yeah. Anyway, so, good luck with that. That's going to be great. So, for those of you that are watching, if you're taking on your own Tour de France challenge or something along that sort of lines, you know, let us know on Twitter whether it's ten percent or fifteen percent or twenty percent of the altitude or the distance. Um, it's always fascinating to know how people take on these uh, events in all different guises. But uh, best of luck to all of you and uh, yeah we look forward to the next month and a half of incredible action there'll be lots to talk about no doubt and we'll be keeping up to date with all the uh, stuff the relevant uh, the relevant stuff around uh, the science of sport but from us for now it's goodbye thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports ipod and on instagram at science of sport podcast up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com